If you can, I want you to close your eyes and try to imagine an Old West gunfight. What are you envisioning? Two guys facing off in the middle of the street, high noon, fingers twitching at the butts of their holstered six-shooters. Maybe you're picturing a desperate fight on the prairie. The last stand is scared yet determined men dig in, counting their ammunition and violence sell their lives dearly. Or maybe you've got a more realistic idea. A smoky, crowded saloon as deadly drunks clear leather began blasting away at themselves and everybody else, just mere feet apart. I think it's safe to assume that whatever the scenario, you're probably just imagining men, right? And for good reason. I mean, there weren't really any female gunfighters, at least not that I'm aware of. You had your lady bandits like Bell Starr and Ann Dunn, sure, but they weren't exactly out there stacking bodies like John Wesley Harden. Point I'm trying to make is you've probably never heard of two females squaring off against each other and resorting to gunplay, as far as the Old West goes. Well, my friend, you are in luck because I've got one such tale for you today. A little something I like to call the Battle of the Bordellos. The cat fight at the cat house. The bout of the madams. So drop them petticoats and loosen up them corsets. My name's Josh and this is the Wild West Stravaganza. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Ain't that what they say? But what happens when it's also a woman doing the scorning? And what happens if that hell is just El Paso, Texas? One hell of a cat fight, that's what. Seriously though, El Paso back in April of 1886 was most definitely still the wild and woolly west. Hell, this was almost nine years before the aforementioned John Wesley Hardin would make the border town his home and his final resting place. In the year 1880, El Paso boasted a population of 736. A decade later, in 1890, the population had exploded to over 10,000. Of course, people had been living in the locale for much, much longer than that. Folsom points discovered in the greater El Paso region suggest at least 12,000 years of human habitation. Tribes whose names we don't even know resided there. And so did tribes that we do know about, like the Yumano, and later on the Mescalero. And then the Spanish, who first visited the area way back in 1581, before establishing the village of El Paso in 1630 a village that was actually still a part of New Mexico until the 1850 Compromise. By 1859, a visitor had this to say about the village. Quote, The Texas town of El Paso had 400 inhabitants, chiefly Mexicans. Its businessmen were Americans, but Spanish was the prevailing language. All the features were Mexican, low and flat adobe buildings, shady cottonwoods under which dusky, smoky women with swarthy children sold fruit, vegetables, and bread. Habitual gambling universal, from the boys' game of pitching quartillas to the great saloons where huge piles of silver were staked at Monte. In this little village, $100,000 often exchanged hands in a single night through the potent agencies of Monte and poker. There were only two or three American ladies, and most of the whites kept Mexican mistresses. All goods were brought on wagons from the Gulf of Mexico and sold in an advance of three or four hundred percent at eastern prices. From hills overlooking the town, the eye takes in a charming picture. Far-stretching valley enriched with orchards, vineyards, and cornfields, through which the river traces a shining pathway. Across it appear the flat roofs and cathedral towers of the old Mexican El Paso. Still further, dim, misty mountains melt into the blue sky. End quote. My goodness, sounds picturesque. Sadly, however, El Paso wouldn't stay a sleepy little exotic hamlet forever. 
The railroad would come in 1881, and with it an influx of migrants, mostly from back east. This accounts for the drastic change in population that I mentioned a minute ago, between the years 1880 and 1890. As you can imagine, a boost in population also means a boost in crime. What long before the boomtown became known as the six-shooter capital, as violence, gambling, and prostitution flourished. By 1890, El Paso had a new nickname, the Monte Carlo of the United States. Or, as visiting U.S. President Benjamin Harrison called it, Sin City. And of course, El Paso, like many western towns back in those days, was actually two separate entities. You had your respectable part of town, right? Where the so-called decent people lived. That's where you'd find legitimate businesses, churches, schools, and such. Then you had the other side of town, an area that would become known as the Tenderloin District. This is where a man could find temporary love, get a good drunk on, gamble away his money, and quite possibly his life. This is also where the broken lived, the downtrodden, the unfortunate, along with those that prey on their kind. And within this Tenderloin District, you had an area known as the Utah Street Reservation. And that's where hundreds of soiled doves plied their trade. And by soiled doves, I mean working gals. Prostitutes. One of which was a lady by the name of Alice Abbott, a.k.a. Big Alice, also known as Fat Alice. Now a little history lesson of El Paso that I shared with you. Alice Abbott likely didn't know anything about any of that. Probably she didn't even care. The only part that concerned her was when the railroad came to town, as it was her vessel of choice when she joined the growing population in the year 1881. Now, we don't know much about Alice. What else is new, right? She was probably born sometime in the 1840s, possibly in Louisville, Kentucky. Luckily, there is at least one picture of Big Alice, so we know what she looked like. Dark-haired and thin-lipped, with somewhat of a plump face, Alice could be best described as looking stout. Like the kind of lady that could lift heavy objects, as well as heavy men. You can only tell so much from one picture, you know. Thankfully, as far as Alice is concerned, we've got plenty of eyewitness descriptions. And they've all got one thing in common. Miss Abbott was a big gal. They say she stood six feet tall and weighed anywhere from 190 to 230 pounds. Hence the name Big or Fat Alice. Now me personally, I kind of take issue with this. First off, how the hell did anybody know what she weighed? I highly doubt she was sharing that information with anybody. And secondly, 200 pounds on a six-foot-tall woman isn't really what I'd consider overweight. Big, yes. At a height of six feet tall, she likely towered over most of the men who called El Paso home. But even if she weighed 230 pounds, eh, I don't know. I kind of feel like that doesn't really qualify as huge or anything. Healthy, maybe. Rubenesque, even. Or as I like to call it, a good time. And what if she was on the bigger side? You fellas are scared of a little bit of meat with your potatoes. Maybe you need to start taking your damn vitamins. They don't call them love handles for nothing. You know what I mean? Besides, let's be honest. The bigger the fupa, the tastier the chalupa. Okay. Full disclosure, I did find one and just one reference to Big Alice weighing in at 300 pounds. Which would make more sense considering the nicknames. And judging by that one picture... 300 pounds does look more accurate than 190. However, the point still stands, I guess. You know, for the time and place, she was considered a bigger woman. Anyway, once Miss Alice Abbott showed up in El Paso, she opened up her own joint on Utah Street. Number 19 Utah Street, to be exact. By the way, Utah Street is now known as South Mesa, for any of you living in or visiting El Paso. And by joint, I do mean whorehouse. A legal whorehouse. Kind of. 
I mean, sure, you did have to grease the cops every now and then, in more ways than one, I'm sure. You know, most of these madams were charged a quote-unquote fine of $10 a month, just the price of doing business. And then they likely paid a little extra to keep the peace, you know, protection money. Long story short, everybody was getting paid and everybody was getting laid. But not everybody was equal. There were levels to the horror game back in the Old West, especially in places like El Paso. The bottom of the rung, you had what was called the Crib Girls, sort of like your modern-day streetwalkers. They advertised their goods on public thoroughfares and took clients back to their small little dens or apartments, also known as cribs. These women could be purchased for as little as 50 cents and led what could only be described as miserable lives. And I don't say that out of judgment. I say it out of pity. You know, many of them were broken, spent, used up, abused, just eking out the last of their days. Got to imagine the sex trafficking played a very large part down in the cribs. A lot of women, if not all of the women there, were there against their will. Women who oftentimes couldn't even speak the same language as the men who were buying them. Then you had the saloon girls. Think of the gals who worked at the gym saloon on HBO's Deadwood. Just like on the show, the saloon girls would meet their clientele in the saloon proper and then take them to the back or upstairs and trade some loving for money. Once again, we're dealing with women who oftentimes did not have a choice in what they were doing. In the real-life Deadwood, the real-life Al Swearingen did lure these women to his saloon under false pretenses. The promises of jobs cleaning or cooking and stuff like that, only to then force them into prostitution. And if you wanted to leave, well, you did so at your own peril. Trust me, this practice ran rampant across the West. Just like the crib girls, saloon-working gals were often on the losing side of beatings and abuse. Another good example for these type of ladies would be from the movie Unforgiven. Remember the ones that were working at the Billards Hall for Skinny? Remember how that one girl got her face cut up? I can only assume that abuse like this also ran rampant. And that there was very little done in the way of justice other than paying off her pimp. These women, simply put, were just property. Of course, you also had the more upscale establishments. Once again, I'll use Deadwood as an example. Remember Cy Tolliver and the Bella Union? Remember what he said when Al came sniffing around? We're offering different atmospheres. You're a pioneering type, a trailblazing type. You're going to draw a trailblazing element. To which Swearingen replied, Mean and I get the ones who don't wash. And yeah, that is kind of what it meant. The fancier the place, the cleaner the girls, the more a man could expect to spend. Especially at places like the Shea Me, Joni Stubbs' fancy whorehouse she opened up when she broke from Tolliver. That would have been the top rung, what would be called a parlor house. And from what I can tell, that is what it appears that Fat Alice ran. A proper whorehouse or a parlor house. Only problem was, she had competition directly across the street with another madam. A red-headed French-Canadian by the name of Etta the Grasshopper Clark. <laughs> I'm not making that name up. Fat Alice and the Grasshopper. I think I saw them open up for Trippin' Daisies back in 98. Uh, anyway, these two madams weren't always enemies, by the way. Evidence suggests that they were friends at one point and maybe even lovers. But money is money and you don't mess with another man or uh, woman's money. And you damn sure don't go poaching the girls, which it seems Miss Clark did, even if it was inadvertently. And while I'm pretty sure this little tussle was a long time coming, for sure Clark and Abbott had a history. The actual violence was directly related to the grasshopper stealing or at least giving refuge to one of Alice Abbott's top earners a young lady named Bessie Colvin. And Bessie wasn't just one of Fat Alice's top earners, but she was one of the most popular girls in the entire damn Tenderloin district. 
As such, she could probably name her price, so comes as no shock to learn that she and Alice began quarreling over money. By the way, there is a picture of Bessie online, and yeah, she was very pretty. It almost doesn't seem like a real picture from those days. It looks more like a modern-day model is posing and using some sort of Instagram filter. So just judging by that one photo, the idea that Bessie Colvin was very sought after certainly adds up. And maybe it got to her head, because apparently she stopped paying Alice the money she owed for rent. Story goes that Miss Colvin got some liquid courage in her and told Big Alice that she didn't owe her shit. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And then things escalated and Bessie finally had enough. Bidding Alice adieu and sashaying her fine ass across the thoroughfare to Edda's joint. Telling all who would listen that, quote, Prime Cut will soon be found across the street. End quote. Prime Cut, of course, meaning her little poontang. You know, that's a good thing about being good at what you do. If you're an average employee, you're replaceable. Or you might find it hard to get a new job somewhere else. But learn you a good skill, a good trade, and get really good at it, and you can take your skills elsewhere. Bessie knew she had that sweet pousset, that's French for pussy, and knew that it would be appreciated elsewhere. Only problem is, one doesn't simply just walk away from Big Alice Abbott. Not if she's got anything to say about it. That's just not going to happen, okay? Alice don't play no shit, you hear me? Alice never been about that. Never been about playing no shit. Shout out to the other guys. I love that movie. All right, moving forward. Miss Alice promptly marched across that dusty street and began banging on the front door of Edda the Grasshopper's place. Opening the door just barely enough to look out, Edda told Alice to kick rocks and refused to let her angry rival come inside. Got to assume letting people come inside is an occupational hazard both Alice and Etta were familiar with, if you catch my drift. This refusal, however, didn't sit too well with Alice. Using her massive or stout frame, she ripped the entire door off its hinges. It came barreling in, smashing Etta's face in the process. Not exactly a wilting flower herself, and knowing full well you can't have a conscience in the pimp game, Etta Clark went for the nearest weapon she could find, a heavy brass gas lighter. Now, these old gas lighters, from what I can tell, they aren't tiny. They're long enough, about two and a half, three feet long, to light street lamps or high-up ceiling lights. Made of brass, they usually have a wooden handle and a valve key on the end for turning on gas, as well as a wick for lighting lamps. Not something you'd want to take into battle, but then again, it's not exactly something you'd want to get slapped upside the face with either. In the right hands, it would be possible to beat a man, or a plump madam, to death with such a contraption. Which I'm sure is what Etta had in mind, swinging that brass lighter at Alice's large head with all she had. It was no use, though. Alice Abbott had her dander up. She deflected the blow and rammed her fist into Etta's mouth, sending the smaller madam tumbling to the ground. Alice then grabbed Etta by the wrist and began dragging her across the floor like a damn Swiffer wet jet. Finally, Etta mustered up enough strength to escape Abbott's clutches, fled to her quarters, quickly re-emerging with a bone-handled forty-four bulldog revolver. Miss Alice, I want you to leave my house, Etta ordered, thumbing back the hammer. Oh, I'll leave your house, was Alice's reply, as she did the exact opposite, started approaching Etta with a menacing look on her face, just seeming to disregard the pistol entirely. Now, by this time, Etta was done making threats. I guess she didn't play either. I'll kill the damn bitch, she cried. Now, by the way, I'm not making this dialogue up. These are the reported words that they said to each other. I'll kill the damn bitch, is what Etta said, right before she squeezed the trigger, sending around straight into Alice's moneymaker. Yes, you heard me correctly. 
for a lack of better words, Etta shot Alice in the cooter. My God, I'm shot, Abbott bellowed, staggering out of the cat house and collapsing on the street. Etta wasn't done, though, and aiming to finish things, she followed, firing three more rounds at Alice that luckily missed their mark. Now, that 44 slug that hit Alice struck her in something called the pubic arch, a medical term that a local paper would report either accidentally or tongue-in-cheek as her public arch, alluding to her occupation. I didn't know what a pubic arch was, so I googled it. Medically speaking, it's the notch formed by the inferior rami of the two conjoined pubic bones as they diverge from the midline. And that's according to Merriam-Webster, who I don't believe was a prostitute. But I still don't really know what a pubic arch means, so you know I kept looking. I'll try to sum it up for those of you like me without a damn medical degree. But here's what it is. Think about those fake skeletons we used to have back in school. Now imagine that pelvis bone region. The pubic arch is the very bottom of the pelvis bone. You know what? Better yet, just Google it or trust me in saying that it's not exactly a fun place to get shot. Either way, once you understand what I'm talking about, you'll get why I say that Miss Abbott caught around right there in her coochie coochie ya ya ya. Talk about a vaginal discharge. Luckily for her, the bullet passed on through without hitting any vitals. Although I suppose her little flower pot could be considered vital. Still, though, it wasn't much longer before she was back on her feet, and back, and knees, making that money. Etta Clark ended up turning herself into authorities and got slapped with attempted first-degree murder charges. Less than a month later, a jury would find her not guilty on grounds of self-defense. And while I agree she was definitely defending herself, I do wonder how many customers of hers were on that jury. As far as Alice goes, well... She may not have let bygones be bygones. Like I said, that paper, to her humiliation, referred to her pubic arch as her public arch. And she had to deal with the fact that Etta remained unpunished, right there across the street. And in my mind, at least, I imagine that Etta probably would have been taunting Alice. It does look like there is a chance that Alice got her revenge. And if she did, she waited two long years to do so. Finally, one dark night in the summer of 1888, Etta the Grasshopper's place got torched. Completely burned to the ground and reduced her and her ladies to plying their trade on the streets, right along with the crib girls. At least temporarily. You know, eventually a wealthier client came along and built her a new parlor. Now, obviously, I can't prove that it was Alice that set the building on fire. But I don't believe much in coincidences, and she certainly did have the motivation. Abbott would continue pimping in El Paso until 1890 before selling her cat house to another infamous madam, Tilly Howard. And finally, on April 7, 1896, Big Alice Abbott's heart gave out. She was likely only in her early 50s, and she was buried there in the Evergreen Cemetery. I'm not sure what happened to Bessie Colvin, the Helen of El Paso, if you will other than that she did return to work for Big Alice after that shooting incident over at Edda's brothel, which leads me to believe that Alice's pimp hand was indeed strong. As for Edda, her place would burn down again in 1905. Already not doing all that well health-wise, inhaling all that smoke didn't much help matters. She herself would pass away a few years later in Atlanta in 1908 as a direct result of her lingering illness and the complications from that smoke inhalation. Now, the pictures we have of these ladies come from Alice Abbott's photo album, which is full of all kinds of interesting notes left by the madam herself. 
Apparently, she kept pictures of all her soiled doves, and many of them have the letter A surrounded by a heart drawn on them, a symbol that some think indicates the girls who also doubled as Alice's lovers. Other notes she scribbled in the album include nicknames such as the Missouri Whacker, Bitches of the Road, and one prostitute she dubbed Loverboy Mabel Jacobs. As far as the picture of Etta Clark goes, well, Alice marked a big red X over and left a note that appears to read, quote, whore to N words, end quote. I'll let you figure that one out. You know, I don't know about you, but when I consider Old West prostitutes, it's very easy for me to slip into a, uh, I don't know, a fantastical frame of mind. Like, you ever seen Westworld on HBO? I mean, the women on there are sexy, right? But then I remind myself of how it really was. Nobody brushed their teeth, and I do mean nobody. In the early 1900s, only 7% of American households brushed their teeth or at least had toothpaste in their homes. During the First World War, most of the Army recruits had such poor oral hygiene that the military considered dental disease a national crisis. And that was nearly 40 years after Big Alice and Etta got in that fight. The women didn't shave their legs or anything else for that matter. Neither did the men. Nobody wore deodorant. And how often do you think these prostitutes bathed? Let's pretend it was once a day, which it for sure wasn't, but let's just say it was. How many men did they service in a day? Men who also weren't bathing on the regular. And this was El Paso. It gets hot there, like really hot. Even the stench of the most upscale parlor house in 1880 would be enough to make us modern day people gag. But I suppose it's what you're used to, right? As far as the actual historical town of El Paso goes, I did try to find out what now stands at 19 South Utah Street, where Fat Alice plied her trade. But I don't know what that location is in terms of present-day South Mesa. If it is 19 South Mesa, then it is just a fenced-in empty lot in front of a SK Cosmetics beauty supply building. We know that Alice sold her whorehouse to Tilly Howard. However, that place burned down. But Tilly's new brothel was just a block away at 214 South Mesa which also appears to just be an open lot right next to a beauty salon and a sporting goods store. Interestingly enough, that place at 214 South Mesa was the site of another famous Wild West incident in 1894 when a guy named Bass Outlaw, not to be confused with the outlaw Sam Bass, got himself shot to death by El Paso Constable John Selman. Constable Selman, of course, would go on to kill John Wesley Harden just a year later at the Acme Saloon located on... You guessed it, what's now known as Mesa Street. Actually, the northwest corner of Mesa and San Antonio Avenue, which now appears to be, if I'm looking at this map correctly, an Al Rio toy store. And I believe, uh, check me on this, but I believe this is the same corner that Dallas Studenmeyer had his famous four dead and five seconds gunfight. And it's the same area where John Selman, who I just mentioned, himself was gunned down just nine months after he gunned down John Wesley Harden. Whew. Lots of killing and lots of history right there on El Paso's Mesa Street. And a whole lot of whoring. Remember that bulldog revolver I mentioned that Eddie used to shoot Alice? Well, that's basically just a snub-nosed revolver. It's the same type of pistol that was used to assassinate U.S. President James Garfield in 1881. That one being chambered in 442. And I reckon that's about all I've got on Alice Abbott and Etta Clark. Shout out to the always valuable True West Magazine for providing some good research fodder for this episode. I'll leave several links in this uh, episode's show notes if you want further reading or you just like to see what these ladies look like. 
One more thing. I know I joke around a lot, especially on this episode, but my heart really does go out to these working women. I know it's a life that's often glamorized, but in reality, it's anything but. And glamorization aside, it's not something that very many people choose to do. The vast majority of the time, anyone prostituting themselves out is doing so from pure desperation. Whether it be addiction, extreme poverty, broken homes, under the threat of violence, or just a combination of all of the above. The lifestyle is not glamorous and it rarely ends well. Now, me personally, I do believe it should be decriminalized. I don't see the point in locking these women up, charging them with crimes, and making it even harder for them to get ahead and find legitimate work. You're just making a desperate situation much, much worse. At least if it was legal, maybe it could be more regulated, safer. Maybe it'd be easier for these abused women to go to authorities for help. I don't know. What do I know? I guess the thing to keep in mind is that these girls weren't always prostitutes. This is somebody's daughter, little sister that's being bought. My heart goes out to them. And all joking aside, there is no judgment in this episode of anybody that is stuck in that life. That the reality of prostitution is heartbreaking. I don't know how to fix it. I have no solutions other than just love your daughters. As the late great Billy Joe Shaver once sang, don't let the darkness take them. Don't make them feel forsaken. Just lead them safely to the light. All right, enough of that. Thank you all for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with a friend. And make sure you head on over to my website, wildwestextra.com. Hit that contact button and let me know what you think. The best possible way you can support the Wild West Extravaganza is by continuing to listen and continuing to share it with other people. Once again, seriously, thank you for listening. And check out my last episode if you haven't already on Big Nose George, the Wyoming bandit who grew even more interesting after he died. Also linked in this episode's show notes. Now, I normally don't release two episodes in one week, but it's been a while, so I figured I'd give y'all something to listen to. From now on, though, it'll be every other Wednesday, God willing. Until next time, remember, pimps don't cry. And do yourself a favor, watch the other guys. If you've got a vagina, try not to get shot in it. Also, try not to shoot anybody in their vaginas. Let's just all treat each other's vaginas with respect, okay? All right, adios. Shot Alice in the Cooter. <laughs>